Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Small Council Radio, where we talk about anything and everything, a song of ice and fire. So tonight, we're going to be going over the vision and the flames, where they talk about uh, the rules changes. Um, if you guys haven't seen it already I'd, or heard it, I should say, I would definitely go over to On the Table Gaming and check out uh, their episode with uh, the interview on uh, or with Michael Chanel. Uh, you'll be able to get so much info there as well. Uh, this show, we're going to kind of recap on what they talked about uh, for that show while giving our kind of personal takes on the matter. Uh, so yeah, I would I would highly recommend, you know, obviously listening to this show, but also go over to On the Table Gaming and listen to that because it's got a lot of content uh, all packed, packed into that show. So, uh, but yeah, uh, for tonight's show, um, there's definitely a lot of uh, changes coming. Uh, I think from what I've seen, um, they're all good changes, and I'm excited to kind of see where it takes us and what else they kind of release um, as far as units before uh, quarter two, which is when they're saying that this is probably going to drop. Um, but, yeah, uh, but tonight with us we have Brett and Justin. Thank you guys for coming on for the show. So Brett, why don't you uh, why don't you take us uh, into the first topic? What do you think uh, we should talk about first? Oh boy, um, can you guys hear me? Okay, by the way. Uh, no, you're. It sounds like you're really far away and echoey. Okay, give me just a second. Um, let me fix this. Uh, to be honest, just just pick whatever you. <laughs> just give me a second. Cover for me. Um, all right, yeah, let's uh we can talk about um the clean they cleaned up a lot of wording. Uh so if you've seen their downloaded PDF that they sent in their fission and the flames, uh I printed out all the pages to kinda you know, be able to physically go through them. Um, let's see, on page five you can find common game terms. Uh, now, it's been a long time since I've had to look at the rule books, so I can't remember if they already had this section. I'm assuming that they did, but I think they just added a bunch of words to it, in particular target and pivot. Uh, so for target, uh, they have on here, this refers to the chosen recipient of an ability or effect, such as holders or tactics cards. And then uh, you can also find pivot, which is when a unit pivots, it is rotated uh, around its center to any facing, ignoring other units, trays, both friendly and enemy, as long as they do not end overlapping. Uh, and you can find additional information on the pivoting on, it says, page 13, which does. I think it just kind of, uh, that's where it'll show you a bunch of the images and then uh, kind of rehash the uh, what you just read in pivoting on there. So it's it's really nice that they're going through and just kind of cleaning up everything. That's you know that's awesome. Uh, that we players that have been playing for a while, a lot of it's common sense. Um, but you know, for new play, newer players coming in, or for players that I guess don't get to play as much as they would like, which you know, with everything going on, I think that's probably a good majority of people. There's a lot of like terms that can get confusing. Uh, so it's just really nice to see a uh, company go through and um, clean things up for 
to just make, you know, so that there's no doubt on what they intended. Because I know that's a big topic of rules as written and rules as intended. Uh, but when they go through and kind of turn the rules as written into what was intended, you know, that's that's the best result, I think. What, what I think is really helpful um, is the uh, and um, just the very, very, very clear definition for what a move is. Uh, that's a subject that often comes up with newer players. They're asking about it because of pre-folk trappers. They want to know what constitutes a move. Is a shift a move? Is a pivot independently a move? You know, things like this. And, and so verifying any time that you're physically moving the tray is a movement is a pretty nice clear up. Now, is my sound quality better now? Uh, what do you think, Justin? I I yeah, had to turn the volume better. up a bit. Okay, yeah. yeah. I had to turn it up, and I wasn't sure if me turning my volume up is what did it or if you changed something. So Definitely better. Okay, awesome. Okay, good. All right, cool. So that for me, that's the big one, um, is just a really, really textbook, very clear definition of move. Um, it's really simple, but at the same time, it's uh, it's cleared up a lot of potential would-be questions, you know, things that would certainly continue to be asked, and now I feel like it's a very clear uh, definition. So I'm pretty happy with the with the index of terms and rules uh, as they pertain to those terms. So uh, I think targets cleared up pretty well. I think it's pretty obvious that um, when it's an ability or any effect or, you know, from a card, whatever it may be, uh, whoever is benefiting from it or it's detrimental towards, they would be the target. So um, does mention in there as well, correct, that in some cases there will be multiple targets. So this would be in the case of an effect like uh, Sword in the Darkness. You're playing that to get the, uh, you're doing that to get the vulnerable token on the enemy. So they would be the target, but it's also targeting the um, Night's Watch unit. So, they are becoming, uh, getting the plus two tactics and attaching the valve. So that's just one example. What about you, Justin? In regards to just the clearing just, up of the words? Yeah, and then maybe uh, just like target and pivot in, in particular. So with target, I know there's definitely been uh, questions, especially when it comes to multi-target, um, but I can't really say anything more that Brett didn't say except an example of multiple targets could be uh, Ramsey's card for um, placing like two panic tokens on two different targets or whatever the case. Uh, pivoting, I think, is probably really important because if there's anything that veteran players complain about or not complain about but argue about the most, it's probably like pivoting and minor movement shenanigan things. So while it's easy for a newer player to come up with questions and stuff, uh, generally veteran players have to nitpick things, which isn't necessarily nitpicking. I don't mean to say like it's a bad thing. Like rules are rules. Uh, Dave and I were talking about this earlier this week, um, and it's really important to play by the rules. Um, so like the difference between being able to pivot and not pivot can be huge, especially if you happen to go half on an enemy instead of full like an idiot, and then you end up, engage with another enemy and you can't really pivot to face them or something crazy like that. So clearing that up really alleviates some of those questions and they can definitely get really complicated. Like, what am I allowed to do here? And, oh, Cause sometimes it also doesn't make sense 
uh, some of the rules, but that's just a byproduct of a miniature game. Like, why wouldn't I just turn sideways? But, um, yeah, I guess that's what I have to say about it. Yeah, and it's, I definitely agree with the, you know, it's nice uh, to kind of clear it up so that there's less arguments with uh, things that are, you know, seem like, you know, the rules is written, so it's the best thing to go by between the two, I think. Um, But, uh, you know, I can understand some people want to argue for rules as intended when some of the rules as written can be interpreted uh, very, you know, in such a way that it just seems out there. But then again, it's, you know, rules as intended only works if the person that wrote it tells you their intention. Um, uh, Whereas, you know, you might read it and the rules as intended might just be your opinion on what they intended, whereas someone else could read the same thing and their rules as intended could be something completely different. So it's just, you know, the less to, uh, the less in doubt you are about the way things work, the better. So um, you can find the common game terms on page five. So if you guys haven't uh, taken a look at the new rules yet, I would definitely go look them up. Uh, I've neglected to read through the whole thing, uh, but I definitely want to because every time they come out with a new version of the rule book, I definitely like reading through all of it uh, at least I, two times. I just I just pulled up my notes. I have everything in the rule book that's changed all neatly organized here. Okay. 652,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite that many, but I've got, I've got all of the, I, I went through and compared and I've got everything that's changed. So well, maybe we, I missed uh, a thing or two. Well, why don't we go off your list and we'll go in order from top to bottom. That way we don't miss nothing, but you can skip over the things that are, you can like just say them, but we can kind of skip over anything that's such, you know, very minor that doesn't really need uh, elaboration. Yeah. Before we some uh, things aren't a big deal. Before we continue, I kind of wanted to just like point out what David said because I think it's really important to remember. Uh, like people say, rules is intended, and it's it's super important to remember that the only way you can know what the intention of the writer was is by asking the writer. There's no way that any human being is like without hearing it directly from the person who wrote it. Like I know exactly what someone else's mind intended. Never going to be the case. <laughs> And people like to think they do. Just it's a dangerous path, and it makes people either look arrogant or pushes false information, which could be just as bad. Arrogant, ignorant. Sorry. Anyways, <laughs> continue. Okay, so uh, on page six, we've got a, a very clear definition of the activation phase. We've got the start of turn. Sometimes players will have effects that specifically trigger at the start of a turn. These effects are resolved before anything else on a player's turn. Unit activates. The player will now select one of their units that has not yet activated this round to activate. This may be either a combat unit or a non-combat unit. This is known as a unit's activation. Unit selects action. The unit will then select and resolve one action. See actions on pages 13 and page 20. End of turn. Once that unit has completed its actions, all players will have one additional opportunity to play any cards, trigger abilities, etc., before the turn ends. So it's kind of the way it's always been, but it's really broken down and, and written and spelled out for you exactly how that's working. So All right. uh, then, moving, then moving on after that, 
after the start of a player's turn if they do not have any units left to activate. Play proceeds to the end of turn setup. If all units have been activated, then the activation phase, activation phase ends and the cleanup phase begins. So that's important because that just lets you know if Dave has 10 activations because he plays starts and I have seven and I've put my trackers into a position to where they can use mark target, uh, start of Dave's turn nine, even though, or start of my, what would be my turn nine, even though I'm out of activations, I can still use mark target because I still get a turn. So that's pretty much being spelled out there as well. That's where that one's going to be pretty important. Um, cleanup phase. During this phase, the following steps should be taken in order. Most of that's the same. The only thing that's different, they will then draw until their hands contain three tactics cards. Each player is limited to a maximum of five tactics cards in their hand at any time. If they should draw cards that puts them above their maximum hand size, they must immediately discard down to their maximum hand size. Now this one's big. So that's going to be the thing that uh, uh, probably of all the changes in the rule book, this is going to be the one that stands out to most people. Um, I'm sure that Baratheons, particularly the Renly side, and Night's Watch players are feeling pretty victimized by this, uh, maybe even a little bit upset. Uh, I play Night's Watch and I play Tyrion. I'm really not upset about this change. Um, being frank, it's kind of ludicrous when a person has 13, 14 cards in hand and then you kind of just have to play the game knowing that whatever you do, you're probably getting punished for because they've got their best cards in hand, surely because they've got basically their whole deck in hand. So um, not saying that it should have never happened, but it's just for a lot of people, it's just really frustrating. Uh, it's frustrating to play against. It's frustrating to play into when they've just got so many cards and it's like, you know that they've got something in store for you. So it's just a matter of when that card's coming down. Yeah, and I think uh, it's Night's Watch. I think is definitely the worst of the bunch in regards to you know hoarding tactics cards. But uh, with Elden's uh, strong draw ability, I think uh, a Renly side Baratheon is almost just as bad. The only reason I don't think they're as bad is because they have a lot of the same triggers on their cards. So you're not going to be seeing their cards fly out of their hand as fast. But um, yeah, I definitely love this change. I think this is probably, yeah, I would say it's probably my favorite change out of everything I've seen so far. Just because, I mean, the it gives you so many more options now than having to feel like you need to take the mail, especially if you're a, uh, a faction that didn't even really care for it to begin with because of the spots you need. Um, I think it gives people a lot more options, especially if, you know, you took the mail round one and you're sitting at round two with still five cards in your hand and you're like, well, taking the mail is almost pointless unless I want to block it from them getting, uh, which I think also then uh, uh, makes running Peter a lot more powerful because now you can block the mail while not needing to even take it. What about you, Justin? No. I know you like to, you like to take the mail, but, you know, because you run neutrals, you do have Peter. Is it is it nice to know that less people will be trying to take it, and when they do, they're almost going to have to go out of their way to do it? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. In the few games we've played using some of the new rules, and I know we don't have like the full context, but for instance, that five card hand, that's definitely uh, stopped even me as a neutral player from even bothering to take the mail. Like if I'm looking at my hand and I don't have anything that I specifically need the mail for, then I don't necessarily need to like fish for it still either to try to get those cards that I because I know I'm gonna I'm gonna lose two cards. So now I might be taking. Uh, I find myself taking spots more than I would before. And if I build a list that focuses on the male, uh, specifically like with Stormcrow Lieutenants and stuff like that and Brawn, then I have an easier time getting that and don't feel as bad leaving the male to my opponent, especially if I can maybe try to play around stopping my opponent from playing tactics cards, then they really hamstrings them. Um, I think it's super a super good change possibly like one of the most significant it does affect neutrals a lot too because it'll stop me from uh i've often found myself with like eight to 12 card hands as neutral uh because well more so when the game first came out and the double peter draw it can get a little ridiculous but uh, people don't let me do that very much anymore and it makes me sad Makes me super sad. Makes me super sad. It's really enjoyable when you get in the first turn. You're like, oh, you done messed up, boo boo. (laughs) Not anymore, though. My days, my days are behind me. Though there is some value in, uh, let's say you have, you know, five cards. There is some value in um, taking it again. Let's say that your first initial three cards, you had two, like, when your unit dies cards, and it's like, well, these aren't going to be good. So I might as well ditch them. Well, you don't need to ditch them right away. The the mail actually gives you a free ditch in the middle of the round, whereas normally you can only discard cards uh, from a card effect um, or at the end of the round when you want to discard. So, uh, I mean, it's not very often that that's going to be the case that you're going to be wanting to actively discard a card without getting its effect. But... Um, it still does give you an option. Anything that adds to the toolbox of strategic play, right? Yep. Ready for the next? I'm always ready. Okay, page eight. It's relatively insignificant, uh, Michael would say. Uh, you know, uh, what's he say? Quality of life. Quality of life changes. Uh <laughs> Unit name and affiliation, the name of the unit, and then there's a note for see next page. Innate abilities. Innate abilities cannot be canceled or removed by abilities or effects. Uh, Again, it's things that we knew, but um, now we have it clearly defined. Um, Yeah, okay. Moving on, we've got... Unit name and affiliation. This is on page nine. Sometimes an effect will reference a combat unit's name, such as gaining a bonus when targeting a house number combat unit specifically. This This references the unit name or that specific combat unit. Attachments have no interaction unless stated otherwise. Example, an effect referencing house umber has no interaction on a unit with the umber champion attachment. It only checks if the combat unit itself is house umber. So that's a pretty nice, just for clarity purposes, yeah, but it's it's a pretty nice uh, nice quality of life. Because I'm sure, 
as a new player, you know, I thought putting an Umber champion in a unit of Stark Sworn Swords could make it an Umber unit, and someone had to explain that to me. You know, this was very, very long ago when I first jumped into the game, so it's nice. It's nice to have that put in there. I had the same. I, uh, what was it? Um, oh, it was, uh, my confusion when I first started was I thought Holland Reed, because, you know, he's Kranigman, I thought whoever he influenced, uh, of, uh, would be, how did I confuse that one? I can't, it was like one of my first few games, but I thought like he could help trigger my effects or something in some way because he was Kranigman. Um, Granted, you know, he goes on enemy units now that in hindsight, I don't know how I mix that one up. But yeah, I kind of get what you're saying. And I know some people have uh, asked if even in other cases that, you know, is a, uh, does a, uh, Mountains men unit count as a Lannister unit uh, because they don't have Lannister anywhere in the name, or are they even Mountains men without the mountain the Mountains men affiliation? Uh, so that that definitely uh, helps with just some clarity for probably newer players. Yep, just a just a little quality of life adjustment. Nothing nothing game breaking. There's really nothing to see there. Just uh, move on. <laughs> so there's a couple of these other little quality of life changes. Again, nothing nothing major. Everything um, changed is and if you guys uh listening, uh if you go to like the rule book uh PDF, everything that we're talking about is pretty much in bold, so a lot of the stuff we're skipping over that's just, you know, an improvement to wording, uh you can find uh easily cuz it's all bolded. Um it's not like hidden within all the text that you have to like read everything to find it. So in this example, after shifting has been added, uh, it's just going to reemphasize the fact that you are considered in range and able to make a melee attack. If you can shift into range, uh, you actually probably remember Shane had that argument, uh, saying that when they did the one point, was it the 1.5 rule book? Uh, it would, they mentioned something about ranged attacks and shifting, and Shane argued that you could not shift into range, that you had to be in range, in your maximum range before shifting. There was something in the rule book. At any rate, nonetheless, it's very, very, very clear here that you cannot, that you can shift and make yourself into range. It's, I mean, it's it, most people play it that way anyway. It is known, but there it is in the rulebook. Uh, this one is kind of substantial. On page 16, uh, it's going to be a very fringe case, but it's substantial. Engaging multiple enemies. In some cases, after making a successful charge, the attacker might end up in contact with other enemies besides the target of their charge. If those enemies are in the same arc as the defender, they will be aligned, so they are engaging the attacker at 50%. If they cannot be aligned to 50% or were in a flank arc, they are instead moved by their owner to one inch away from the attacker or the shortest distance, if one inch is not possible, to avoid being engaged. So here we have, again, it's a very fringe case, but here we have a situation where you can engage multiple enemies and this is an instance where you can actually 
pull the defender into you and force them off of their position to line to align 50% to you. So we've all adjusted to the changing rules uh, from the, the original game to the 1.6 charging rules where essentially you charge and then the defender should never have to move. Uh, now we've got this very fringe case where the defender could have to move. Uh, it's very easy to avoid. Just make sure that you don't, if you've got your units spaced out just a little bit, one's just a tiny bit in front of the other, uh, pivoted a little bit differently, something like this, you can avoid this altogether. Uh, but if you do have this type of positioning, it is possible that you will have two of your units get sucked into a melee if they choose to engage 50%. So this one is worth kind of talking about a little bit. Um, and then here, this one is substantial. Uh, once in their final positions, the attacker will then perform one melee attack action against the defender. See melee attacks, page 15. This attack gets the bonus of being able to reroll any attack dice. So now you've got the charge, which is an action, and then you've got the melee attack action, which is an action that's going to have some interesting interactions with uh, the rules that we have for mammoths and the rules that we have for uh, like Preston Greenfield and Mirren Trant, uh, where sometimes doing multiple actions is going to get you multiple effects. For example, as it is now, the mammoth can charge and then get into combat and then replace that melee action with a trample. Uh, Preston Greenfield could charge and draw a card and then make an attack action and draw a card. What do you guys think about this? Uh, I think yeah, I think that's uh, possibly too powerful, uh, especially uh, what's his face the instead of drawing it because you could charge someone and then make them vulnerable panicked off the charge, uh, and I think that would be like super powerful, um, or even uh, in Bastards Girls uh, because. You know, if someone rolls a one uh, on their defense, I think it is, they become vulnerable. Uh, so, I mean, the amount of tokens you could throw out with that unit, especially because you would complete a ranged attack and then throw out a token and then throw out the vulnerable if they roll one and then uh, do the charge action, get a token, and then do the melee attack, get a token. I mean, that's four tokens of which you can toss three of them to, is it units within long? Is that what he does? Yeah. And does it even need line of sight? No. Oh, man. Yeah, I think uh, that might need to be looked at um, just for those abilities. I think maybe keeping the way they've worded everything, fine, but they might need to just reword uh the abilities that um, work off of that because I I don't see like a really great answer to changing the the rule book wording on charging because I mean it it really is two different actions to charge and then you're performing a melee attack uh, but uh, yeah I don't, I don't off the top of my head I don't know like a, a perfect uh, answer for it I mean, I totally agree that in specific situations, like you said, Bastard Girls, four tokens is insane for the for one point. Like, 
That's crazy. Well, is it? No, it'd be three, right? Yeah, three. Sorry. Uh, well, it's four if you count the vulnerable. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's all. But just from basically that rule change with Preston, you'll be getting three. And, I mean, heck, if you get that off twice in a game, which is super easy to do, then he's easily worth his one point. I mean, he's well beyond his one point at that point. I said well, point a lot there. <laughs> could you imagine, though, a Lannister army with Roos and CU commander, and then Roos passing out two panic tokens, and then that one interaction? You could have five panic tokens That'd thrown across, like, everyone. And then Roos, Roos would be like, oh, great. I guess I'm going to trigger all of my cards now. <laughs> Jesus. So, Brett, you're not going to do that, okay? Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> against me. You can do been, it against others. I've been I've been playing neutrals anyway, so I strictly play Roos at this juncture. Um, I really, really like Ramsey, but the activation disparity is just such a big deal in this current meta. Um, yeah, I've just chosen to basically play with my hands tied behind my back in one way and play Ruth. I mean, it's really hands tied behind your back one way uh, or the other. You know, you run without a field commander. A lot of times you are got your hand behind your back, but if you run Ramsey with only seven activations, you've got your hands behind your back. Um, I've given consideration to just running five cutthroats, bastards, girls, and two NCUs, but that, <laughs> that feels like that's maybe a bad decision as well. So I'll have to tinker around with some Ramsey lists, but um it would be pretty powerful. Um, as far as Roos goes, a lot of times I've got more panic tokens out than, than cards that I need to trigger. Uh, we all know that Roos only has two tactics cards anyway. So. Um, <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> two different ones, okay? He's got four. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in the neutral deck, he's got potentially eight, but I don't know that you should necessarily always recycle those <laughs> cards but uh that's a whole nother conversation so yeah i mean it's really powerful did they intend for it to be that way i don't know is uh possibly uh is preston mammoths and mirror and Trant changing to be in line with this because again this is a 1.7 rule book and we are not entirely sure what all of the 1.7 changes are that's possible but maybe not um seems relatively deliberate um, adding the word action in there. So we will have to wait to see if it was something that they didn't anticipate being that powerful or if it's something that they're well aware of uh, because it's a change that they made. So uh, moving on, we are on page 17. Attack completed. Once all of these steps have been performed, this attack will be completed. After this, any abilities or effects that trigger after a unit is attacked can be played. Once this is done, in the case of a melee attack, the attacker may also be able to surge forth. See below, and then it goes into describe surge forth. So it's just a tiny little quality of change again. Note, nothing substantial. Um, yeah, that's all. That's all that's on that page. Oh, we're getting to the good one. 
Yeah, we're coming up on the good one. But uh, <laughs> as far as this one goes, um, yeah, it's really nice because it's, again, for newer players, you know, um, it's very clear that in the case of a card like now, his watch has ended. Um, and the watcher on the wall, these things would happen before you do your surge forth or your overrun. Um, in the case of counter charge, anything like that, it's just pretty well spelled out for you uh, how those things are resolved and in what order they're resolved. Nothing to say, guys? No. Um, I'm just waiting for the, the I think uh, it's coming up, the Panic yeah. change. <laughs> Dave's Dave's over here biting his fingernail, waiting on the big change. Oh yeah. Uh, panic change. The result of the how uh, if it passes the test, nothing happens. On a failure, however, the unit will suffer the result of the D3 in wounds, meaning no defensive saves. Also note that if an effect would allow any dice to be rerolled during a panic test, this includes the D3 die as well. And then it goes on to show you the Sworn Swords who have failed their panic test, and they're suffering one wound, uh, which is what's on the D3. So, uh, yeah, that's the big change, as well as the tactics cards. They're the ones that really have people probably talking. Yeah. uh, I think from what we've seen from... uh, uh, horrific visage and from the pyromancers that were revealed and the Lannister supremacy from um, the Lannister guardsmen. I think, you know, it's pretty clear that they're going to buff the things that need to do damage uh, based on the fact that panic damage is naturally going to be D3, which I think is an amazing change. I think um, panic on the grand scale did need to go down a little bit, but the things that needed to do their damage through panic didn't need to go down. Uh, so that was a nice, uh, a nice way to go about doing it. I think it's uh, quite appropriate too. Weirdly enough, I find as like a neutral player, maybe Brett doesn't feel this way because he actually rules like a real person. Uh, <laughs> I definitely get hurt more by panic tests than ideal even with the majority if not all my stuff having vicious it's just how it works and when you lose you get attacked with cutthroats and even if you only lose a couple dudes um i mean what are you gonna probably at least lose four because they're cutthroats and then you lose another four from your panic test in one attack your units become virtually useless i can definitely be crushing especially when dave rolls 11s continuously <laughs> now another an important thing to note uh you know i i know i've said this before and it was uh it's gonna be you know i'll probably say it again I, i've said it mostly on uh the main uh facebook page but i think berserkers got even better than they were uh, i know a lot of people are not happy with their change um i mean because they lost a morale uh and then they lost it to hit and they lost one die in every rank uh, but they lost a point, and then they can gain those to hits back. I, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, I played uh, a good four games yesterday, which was awesome, and a couple of them with Berserkers. And it's crazy, the D3 on a failure going down to, or the Panic going down to a D3 on failure, and then now they have Unyielding, 
for minus one for every uh, of its destroyed ranks. At last rank, I mean, at max, you can take one. Granted, this is if there's no nothing to boost it, uh, like Lancer Supremacy, but uh, just on a natural panic test, that means even though they have one worse morale, in a lot of cases, five up is still plenty. And then even if you roll bad enough, you know, you have a two-thirds chance at last rank to never take panic damage. So um, just kind of want to throw that in there uh, while we're talking about the D3 uh, damage. No, they, they also lost Thundering, but I'm with you. I think I think the initial reaction to Berserkers is a little bit knee-jerk. Uh, I don't think they're terrible. <clears throat> and then with this reduction in panic, they're actually quite defensive. It's not common for Berserkers as they are now, you know, the the version that we're used to with Sundering. And it's not super common for them to fail morale when they have that 4+, plus, but it does happen. And when it does, it stings pretty badly to lose three, four models in a unit that's, you know, your, supposed to be your elite morale unit. So basically for me, though, the, the, the D3, the change for Panic going to D3 flat You've got to think that um, since they've showcased that Lannister Supremacy is doing additional wounds, uh, you've got to think that that ties into where Michael's saying, you know, uh, faction identity, if this is supposed to be a a faction that does damage with panic, we're going to have ways to push that panic damage through, whereas factions who aren't supposed to be panic specialists, like 1.6 Free Folk, um, who have suddenly become this great panicking army they do almost all of their damage through panic simply because they're attacking you over and over and over again eventually you're failing panic and that's what's killing you the free folk aren't killing you you're running away you're running away from free folk for some reason you don't really know why but you are (laughs) so um i think that that tidying that up and making that a thing is really helpful um i know uh, that it's that it's only minus one wound. Like that's what people are going to say. It's it's the same damage. It's just minus one wound, Brett. But if you think about it, throughout the course of a game, if free folk, because of Steyr in particular, I know that I rage on about this guy, and I'm sorry. But let's just say in a typical game, Steyr forces a minimum of seven to eight panic tests. Now, out of those seven to eight panic tests, depending on what your morale is, if your morale is just average, you're failing half of them. So if you take the plus one away from those four, then you've saved four wounds. Now, that can be pretty substantial, um, and that's not even considering all the other free folk attacks. Um, you could end up finding out that you're saving almost an entire unit uh, just because of the plus one. So with that said, uh, it does take a little bit. When they changed Panic to D3 plus one, I felt like it was a really, really, really viable zone for everybody to take because anywhere between two to four wounds for a failed panic test was definitely a a step up from the old panic test system that used the difference. Um, But I won't say that the crown is bad. Um, There's not really a a situation where you wouldn't want to be able to take wounds off of your opponent. So uh, I think it's just a good, it's a good and it's a healthy change just makes me very curious to see what the panic specialists do. If, if you're going to see some just 
modifiers like what you've seen with Horrific Visage and with uh, Lannister Supremacy getting some modifiers besides just the flat minus two, or if they're going to have some mechanics like cut them down that add more wounds when they fail Tannic. Uh, I mean, I can't really say much more on that. Brett does tend to cover quite a lot of the topic because uh, he's he knows what he's talking about with this, so I don't really want to repeat anything that he said. Um, yeah. You're good. Um, I would say that uh, it's interesting and something that uh, we'll have to see how it plays out, but from my testing so far at uh, using the D3, it's I like it a lot. Um, as you mentioned, Brett, about the crown zone, I really do, I think... Personally, I just don't think it's worth taking now. Um, and it, before, it was barely worth taking. Now that you're only doing possibly D3 to a unit at only a minus one, I think uh, that um, I just think that it needs to change in some way. And I know that kind of sucks because it is the tactics board. That would mean that they would have to reprint the tactics board for that one spot. But you know, it. I find myself even in an army that needs it, having to like rule over you know, ever taking it. Um, and then you know, you ask yourself, okay, I need to run Peter now in order to claim it and use a different spot. But I feel like all the other spots have plenty of merit. Um, you know, maneuver zone can be super clutch. Uh, and then the other three zones are always being taken. But the crown, I mean, a minus one uh, doesn't even mean that they'll fail. And then even when they fail now, that they have a one-third chance to only take a single wound when the spot right next to it heals three. I almost feel like, I don't know, the crown needs to go to like either minus two to it and then um, go back to D3 plus one or just simply be take three wounds from, you know, maybe not be a panic test. They have to take a morale test at uh, minus two. And then if they fail it, they suffer three wounds. Um, I don't know. I just think it needs a major boost because right now, no matter what faction you are, because I play all the armies uh, quite a bit, quite often, that I never see myself ever wanting its effect. And I feel like that's not really something that should be the case. I think that's a really good point. We were talking about it in our last game. It's still, I mean, it feels even worse than it did before because it is even worse than it did before. And it it rarely and changes the game. I do understand that it can have those moments where it changes very dramatically if you kill a very key unit on, like, a really ridiculous roll. But, like, the odds of it happening are in the less than 10% usually. So it's really hard to base something like something's value when it's when it's such a gamble where you're going to fail nine out of ten times and you can only claim a max of five times a game so almost you're almost guaranteed to always fail it um i know that's slightly dramatic and that's almost not the case but it definitely feels like it needs to get stronger i think it's everyone's least favorite spot the only time that people will take it is when their cards require them to and even then they really hesitate to like i can't tell you how many times i haven't seen counterplot re-rolled because they don't have the crown because they just don't care 
Yeah, exactly. I've been playing uh, quite a bit with the new Lannister Supremacy because, as I think I've mentioned before, I think it might be too powerful, and I hope I'm wrong. I really do. Uh, so I've been testing it a lot, and um, from my testing so far, uh, I had one really bad game where it didn't play out the way I wanted to, but uh, in my other games, uh, it's been ridiculously powerful. But with that said, I just uh, as Lannisters, even though I have all these effects that trigger off the crown, I unless I'm running Peter and I do the take the spot and um, claim it, you know, and use a different effect, I almost never have the crown just because it's you know, it's not good enough as its spot itself. Yeah. Um, I still think it's pretty good. Uh, it comes into play being important um, maybe late round and early round, but I, I don't know. I still find value in it, uh, especially if you're running three NCUs, somebody's got to have the crown. I prefer not to be the one taking the panic tests, but at the same time, it's situational. If I've got a zone replacement NCU, I'll find myself replacing the zone and then doing like Craster's Heal and, and draw a card. I'm still afraid of the crown, even when I play like Night's Watch, who have decent morale. Um, but perhaps that's just me. But, um, yeah. yeah, but uh, with the, the point about the Craster, I think only... Uh, helps my argument. I, if you need to use that zone to replace it because the effect itself is bad, that means no. That the... I do. I, I prefer to do it with Crafter because I don't want to take the panic test. I'm just saying though, like, uh, like I block it's... my opponent from taking the crown because I don't want to deal with taking the panic test. Yeah, I just from my experience, I found that. If you have a replacement effect, such as Craster or Peter, Elden, you know, anyone, uh, it's almost always the crown or the maneuver, uh, unless they have to block another spot. But usually, if that's the case, they'll just use their normal NCU to take that spot and use its effect and the NCU's ability, and they'll wait to save their replacement uh NCUs and then replace either. I'm not saying that the maneuver is bad. I think, like I said, it can come in handy in so many situations, but there are a lot of situations where you don't need that maneuver retreat. But um, especially when in tournaments, I've found that uh, so many things have such great morale across the board and a simple minus one, you know, the fact that it's the only spot that doesn't guarantee it's going to do anything. Um, I think is pretty big as well. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's swingy. That's that's the nature of it. But I'm still yeah, afraid but, of it. Some people still weaponize it and use it to really yeah, nice effect. So we'll have to we'll have to see. Yeah, I've definitely had plenty of games where like it's been a key moment where the crown did something. I'm just saying in my vast majority of games that number of times it's been that way has been very small. Um but it definitely I mean obviously there's always going to be cases where it's going to swing a game. I mean, I I've won a game by using the crown to zap someone and dance with dragons so that they drop their objective and I win. Um Yep. But 
Uh, but otherwise, like it's uh, it's little risk, and or I should almost say high risk because you're claiming a zone that, is, in my opinion, is not near as good as the other four for little reward now for the fact that they could do as little as one to two wounds, three if you're lucky. Three is nice, but then again, like I said, the space right next to it heals three. So it heal it auto-heals the max of what the space next to it can do. Um, I don't know. Uh, kind of been talking about this one for a while, but we'll see what they kind of do. I really don't think they'll change it because, like I said, then they'd have to change the whole tactics, like reprint new tactics boards, uh, and I don't think that they're going to be doing that. But So what's next up on the uh, on the list there? Uh, this one's just a tiny little subtle change. Um, commanders are typically an attachment, and then they've added, but in some rare cases might be otherwise. This will be noted on their individual stat card. So typically you've got a field commander there's, uh, that's an attachment into an, you know, an infantry or a cavalry unit, but in some rare cases, like when your commander is an actual war machine, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, uh, it's just... Uh, it's just added in there, you know, for commanders that aren't attachments, like your NCU commanders, and uh, that's Which uh, page is that <laughs> one on? This is on page 20. Okay. Uh, that's it. Uh, now on to page 21. We've got Trigger. Each tr- card, each tactics card lists a... Good Lord, let me start over. Each tactics card lists a specific trigger noting when it can be played. It is important to note that triggers are based off of gameplay events and steps, not the specific wording of the trigger. The unit triggering the tactics card, if any, is the target of that tactics card, but note that its effect might list additional targets as well. This is what I was getting into earlier with targeting. Um, So it's just, you know, again, kind of clarifying with the triggers. They're basically... So because of the way that this game is played and because of some of these important steps, it's a little bit too difficult to, to make like one universal answer for every time a card triggers. So you are basing this off of gameplay events and steps as opposed to specifically what the card says. So basically, you're going to have to do a little bit of reading in between the lines to figure out what's triggering that effect and when you can play the card, and when it's going to be overlapping with other cards and orders. There's just too many orders, tactics cards, and things of this nature to make make it perfectly streamlined, I think. So they're saying, use your brain a little bit and work, navigate your way through this. Sounds good. How do you feel? Is, is, is that the message that you get? Because I think it's too hard to say. So it's showing Northern Ferocity when a friendly unit makes a melee attack. Um, so that would conflict with, uh, you know, any number of other cards so and orders. Yeah, I think uh, they've definitely done a good job of um, clarifying um, up to this point when all the tactics cards are supposed to happen in conjunction with each other, um, especially the after unit is attacked and the like search forth stuff, I think was like the biggest uh, timing 
issue I I would run into. Um, but and then the next biggest was like ability like before and after and when attacking for uh, cards. Yeah. And then on this same page, uh, you've got the simultaneous actions. They've just added a change to once the player whose turn it is passes to their opponent, they may not then respond with their effects. I think that used to say the active player, right? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, what does it say again? It says... Once the player whose turn it is passes to their opponent, they may not then respond with their effects. They have given up their chance to do so. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think uh, they probably changed it just because, you know, again, the quality of life, uh, like, you know, it essentially meant the same thing, but there is, I'm sure, some situations where it uh, could be seen as meaning meaning something else. Another simple quality of change life with rerolls, a die may only ever be forced to be rerolled once by each player. If both players have an effect that would cause a die to be rerolled, the player whose turn it is will first declare and utilize their effects. Once the new results have been generated, their opponents may opt to utilize their effects that would force rerolls. Basically, this is because um, some people used to argue that when you're doing a charge, you roll the first set of dice, and then now I weaken you, and then now I get my charge bonus and re-roll those dice. This is just making it very clear that, you know, in this case, a case like this, you know, I'm charging, I'm going to do my charge rolls, I'm going to do my charge re-rolls, then you're going to weaken me. Just quality of life. Yeah, Nothing especially because, you know, uh, some people are arguing that, because you know, and Michael brought this up in one of his podcasts that if uh, if I roll if I charge and I re-roll because of the charge, that you can't use your weaken token because my dice have already been physically re-rolled by me, because the weaken yeah. also tells me to re-roll them. But it's also kind of clarifying that the effects you know from two different people. So I think yeah, it just it's clearing everything up to make it less. Uh, you know, no, uh, no doubt on what it's supposed to do. Yep. It's been a while. Facebook, Facebook's been really, really helpful. The forums have been really helpful. Discord's been really helpful. It's a really good and positive community. We help each other out a lot, but for those who are newer to the game and are listening to this and, and they're wondering like in the early parts of the game, these are like the types of arguments that were not like, like I'm not saying that people were jerks before, but I'm saying that, like, without the Facebook page being so popular and Discord being so popular and the community being so strong, these arguments kind of found their way to Facebook and kind of within these circles. It was before everybody kind of got on the same page and the metas were kind of mixed. Uh, some people played it this way. So it was possible you could go to, like, a different door in Indiana and they're playing it, like, the wrong way. And then, like, you have to explain it to them, like, but it's just really good for it to be cleared up for everybody. So some people have never heard that before, but there's, it's factual that people used to think that was how it worked, both of the examples that we provided. Uh, next, orders are powerful abilities that may be activated only once per round. Each order lists a specific trigger 
Noting when it can be activated, it is important to note that triggers are based off of gameplay events and steps, not the specific wording of the trigger. The unit with the order is the target of that order, if any, but note that its effect might list additional targets as well. This is just basically exactly like tactics cards, uh, and it's basically giving you that message that you and I just discussed where sometimes you're going to have to read into it a little bit more than just what the card is saying to be able to determine if it's an overlapping trigger. And then when you get into targeting, you're going to have to look at the card itself. Generally, a card like, we'll just use uh, Northern Ferocity, for example, it's targeting the unit that it's being played on and giving them Sundering. But additionally, when you control the swords, it's targeting the defender because they become vulnerable. So just some little important things quality of life changes they're just making things spelled out even more yep it's essentially telling you that whoever is gaining the benefit of the taxes card or order is the uh target not the source in which it's coming from and then we've got just a really subtle change some effects modify specific die rolls such as thundering defenders suffer minus one to defense dice rolls just a little bit of a change of wording there with Sundering. Nothing, not, not a big deal. Probably could have skipped that one, and nobody would have been <laughs> And then you guys, you guys already covered terrain keywords, right, on an episode that I wasn't a part of? Uh, correct, yeah. We did uh, all the terrain and missions already. Uh, one, I, one thing I think we might have skipped over, unless I'm just saying it uh, right before you do, is that crit blow and precision no longer uh, stack with each other. So they both can work on the same attack. So if you roll a six, that six will generate, like we'll call it a ghost hit. You know, it's it's like an additional hit that just hits you. And that six, the natural six, uh, I guess I maybe shouldn't say natural six because that implies other things, but the, the actual physical die itself will then be the precision hit. So essentially if you have critical blow and precision, You'll get one extra hit that just has all the characteristics of the rest of your dice. And then that six that you rolled will be the one that gives uh, no saves. But it will no longer generate two hits that do no saves. So it's still useful to have both effects. Uh, So it is a nerf, uh, and I think a much-needed nerf. But I think uh, it was definitely for the better. Um, And it still has merits to have both effects. It's worth noting that precision has actually been buffed uh, in its own right because the uh, we'll get to that because it's been highlighted. But, uh, um, yeah, I've got some notes here that have been changed, and it's on the very last page of the rulebook, the rules summary, uh, where you've got um, all of your little, basically the game summarized on the back, some of the more important aspects. Uh, you've got panic test, special type of morale test. On a failure, unit suffers D3 wounds. Uh, attack abilities. Listed below are the four most common attack abilities. Critical blow. For each attack die roll of six, the defender suffers plus one hit. Precision. For each attack die roll of six, the defender does not roll a defense dice, but instead suffers one wound. So, uh... Precision is actually a wound, so it would appear that as it's written, it's bypassing things like uh, the Stag's Knight new ability, Giants, 
uh, even dragons with fire made flesh. Sunder. Even shield Defender. wall. Uh, yes. If it's if it's doing a direct wound, it would yes. For each attack I roll of six, the defender does not roll a defense dice, but instead suffers one wound. As opposed to a hit that doesn't allow defense saves. Uh, Sundering, defenders suffer minus one to defense dice rolls. Vicious, defenders suffer, suffer minus two to their panic test roll. And then you've got um, expend this token after an enemy rolls defense dice to force them to re-roll any and all of those dice. And then weakened is specified for attack dice. And then the rest is terrain. And that's it. We've covered the rule book. Awesome. Yeah, and then um, lots of great changes in there. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, overall just all positive things. So I I can't wait to get some more testing in. I think I have about seven games so far with all the new stuff that they've leaked um, or revealed, I should say. Uh, so it'll definitely be good to get some more testing under my belt and have a better like understanding of uh, how it's working. Granted, as you said, Brett, we don't have the full picture. Um, I have a feeling a lot more is to come uh, because uh, if I recall correctly, Simon has never released this much this fast. So I'm crossing my fingers. It's because they just have so much to reveal that they're you know, in order to get it all revealed in time before quarter two, they just, they have to reveal it this fast, but we'll see. Um, but uh, out of all this, uh, what would you say is probably your favorite change? Uh, so for me, it's probably... Like the rules? The panic. It's the panic. panic for me. Yeah. Um, even as a Lannister player where I do some panic damage, panic just... It just felt like such an oof when it was, you know, a minimum of two wounds. And I know, again, yeah, anybody who's listening is like, well, it's only minus one. But it seems, maybe it's just in my mind, but for me, it's, 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 it's a little bit more tame. Um, it's a little bit more fair for me. So I like the panic change. Uh, and it's a very close to the tactics cards change as well. It just feels much better to, you know, feel like your opponent doesn't have every single card in his hand that he needs simply because he's drawn all of those cards, particularly Night's Watch when they draw an early horn that wakes the sleepers. Yeah, and I would say it's it's hard for me to pick which one, but I think uh, barely I would say the five-card hand size. Uh, I think that also gives more uh, um, more strength to Tyrion and who is it for Baratheons? Is it Courtney uh, attachment that gives plus one hand size, but he's never taken because everyone's taken the commander. Um, but, yeah, but um, so let me have a look. It's either Courtney or Eldon. I don't. I I don't think it's Eldon though. It's Courtney. Cause, it's oh Courtney yeah, because Eldon's a commander and an NCU. So, but yeah. Courtney, I believe the difference is he doesn't say that you draw the extra card at the beginning of the game. You'll just have plus one hand size. So. Yeah. 
As long as Courtney Penrose is on the battlefield, you gain plus one to your Texas hand side. So, yeah, it's definitely, you know, having six cards will be very useful because that means you can take the mail, get five, and now you're only obligated to have to use one card to be able to then trigger the mail again. Or even, let's say, Elden. Let's say you take the mail with one NCU, draw two, you're at five, and then um, you use Elden to replace the spot of another zone, and now you can draw into two more if you've only used one card uh, in between those actions. Especially if you entered the round going in and play like Bar- uh, Baratheon's Conviction, you're at two cards. Mail, four cards. Elden, now you're at your six cards with some uh, filtering going on. I think, uh, yeah, it, you know, it'll give more more reason to run uh, Courtney attachment. And then I've been running uh, as Lannisters. I've been running Tyrion uh, NCU quite a bit. And I think uh, he's definitely underused. Oh, for sure. He's great. Uh, I can't run Gregor without him. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, feels wrong. Yeah. Gregor, uh, his cards are so good. Just that extra card to, you know, you could even draw four and, they'd be very kind of lackluster. Let's say none of, you don't draw any of his uh, four uh, name cards or you don't draw any of his name cards in your opening four-card hand. You could literally ditch those four cards, draw into another four, and now you're, what, uh, eight, cards uh, eight cards in, so almost halfway into your deck. The chances that you won't hit any of his name cards in eight cards is pretty rare. So... I think, uh, you know, it's definitely uh, something to consider. But, yeah, uh, was there anything else you kind of want to add? Anything that we didn't really cover enough uh, out of all the changes? Uh, No. No, I think we did a pretty good job, honestly. Um, Just a really nice, clean summary. Yeah, I agree. Um, Again, for those that haven't seen it yet, I would definitely download the PDF. I plan to download a couple copies and get them like nicely, uh, you know, put it into like a binder that way I can use it as a, a rule book that I can easily reference. So, uh, and then I'm going to do a couple of good read through, uh, read throughs that way, you know, I don't get things mixed up, but you know, I think Simon's done an amazing job with the rule book, uh, with the terrain, the missions, uh, to kind of, since we've already done a mission, um, episode i wanted to kind of recap in this episode about the missions yesterday i got four games in uh using the new missions and uh it was amazing um i only complaint i had was i guess the in my other in the other episode where i mentioned how um what mission is it is it winds of winter no i think it's uh dark wings dark words where you just you can score there's too many ways to score um uh we ended our game at like i think it was like uh nine to eleven on round three it was uh pretty nuts so um i think that's the only thing that kind of needs to be changed otherwise uh amazing missions and i'm i'm so happy to see nine like really good missions made by uh simon gives such great variety to tournaments to hold on what wait what did you say 
uh, about Darkwing's Dark Words. Oh, yeah, I, I, I like that scenario. I was just mentioning how uh, I like all the missions I've played so far. The only critique I have is for Darkwing's Dark Words. There's just too many ways to score. Uh, because you can score by the objectives, you can score by killing things, you can score by the special mission deck, and there no longer is a two-point um, increase to the VP required. So the game I played yesterday, uh, by round three, we literally had um, hit, I think it was uh, 9 to 11 in round three. And uh, yeah, like it was, it was pretty bloody. So... Um, I think maybe just something needs to be taken out as far as, you know, ways to score. Obviously not the missions, mission deck. So either, you know, the objectives not inherently giving any points or, uh, um, let's see, or maybe it wasn't Darkwing Star Wars. Maybe it was Winds of Winter. I don't know. I just, one of the missions lets you score in too many ways. So, uh, and we... We just we got so many points so fast that it it just felt like it went too quick. But otherwise, amazing missions. Um, I I never with all the changes, I never like roll a mission and be like, oh, that mission. It's it's always a nice like, okay, cool, let's play that mission. Um, you know, because the worst thing to have is when you're like, okay, let's randomly roll, and then uh, okay, we'll re-roll. We don't want that one. Uh, okay, re-roll. We don't want that one either. <laughs> so. Um, definitely a great job in that aspect. But with that said, I think we can kind of wrap up, uh, giving a couple of shout outs. Um, again, try, uh, going over to on the table gaming. Uh, you can either go through their Facebook or you can go on YouTube to find them. Uh, it's ran by chase and he, uh, did a sh- episode about the new, uh, vision in the flames. It's all one episode. It's about an hour and a half long that briefly goes over, uh, all the rules changes, all the new units, all the missions, and a couple spoilers in there that we're probably going to um, talk about when we talk about the units that were leaked. Um, so uh, definitely go check out their show. Um, it's an interview with Michael Chanel, so definitely a lot of great content in there. Um, otherwise, uh, another place definitely to go and check out is a Song of Ice and Fire uh, Guild.com where you can find a bunch of great content, uh, content creators all in one spot. Uh, and then also if, uh, your, you know, uh, local shop isn't doing all that great, you know, they could always use the help. Definitely consider, uh, you know, going in and buying something. If you have, if it's within your means, um, if they're not open right now, you can always email them. You know, they might be doing curbside, uh, curbside pickup or even, uh, willing to, uh, deliver, um, and then worst case, uh, I've done it once where, you know, if they weren't open at all and doing any of that, uh, I bought a, I just went ahead and bought a gift card from them because, uh, you know, it's money that they can have in the immediate and then you can use when they finally are able to open back up. So just some things to consider. Uh, Brett, do you have any uh, last minute shout outs? Um, I think you pretty well covered the things that I generally shout out, so. No, I think think we're good. <laughs> Any uh, events or uh, um, things going on uh, in whether or not it be in person or uh, TTS? 
Uh, I know Chris is organizing something. Chris Tran is organizing something for a Sunday Slaughter TTS event. He's working with uh, George from Three Sales Gaming. So that one's going to be interesting. Um, I am actually working with Marty and with uh, the head of Steamon Competitive Play. We're going to be putting on uh, an Adepticon replacement event. So you'll want to stay tuned for details. I don't have all of the details yet. But similar to the little replacement Gen Con, but maybe slightly different in that there's zero doubt that this is the uh, official CMON Adepticon tournament that we're going to be putting on. Uh, it's something you will want to be there for because if the vaccine ends up allowing CMON to unroll competitive play this year, this is going to be the first of the competitive play series officially recognized by CMON. So stay tuned for details, and it's something that you will definitely want to come to around March, but I will get those out as soon as I know. Awesome. And then that, uh, do we have a location uh, set? Yeah, we're going to be using uh, Family Time Games again. If we get enough players and we need to uh, comply with COVID restrictions, we are looking at other uh, avenues that we can go to including potentially using the J.C. Penney building that is in that parking lot. So whatever we have to do, we will make something happen. Awesome. And then uh, for those that haven't made it out to uh, Family Time Games yet, it's ran by Shane, an amazing uh, store owner that's supported the community for, you know, pretty much since uh, it started. Uh, he went to the first Adepticon that uh, for when Ice and Fire was coming out. Uh, great guy, uh, and I have made the trip personally, I believe, three or four times now, and there's lots of great cheap, uh, you know, I, when I say cheap, uh, cheap in cost, but, you know, well-kept uh, hotels all within just walking distance. I know the place I stayed at, like, um, it's literally like a 30-second car, car drive from there to the shop, uh, and lots of great places to eat all around the place. Um, so. If you're kind of on a budget, you'll definitely be able to afford, uh, you know, you should be able to afford the trip uh, just because I'm, I'm kind of a cheapo when it comes to that stuff myself. So um, I would definitely, uh, you know, keep uh, keep it open in your calendar. If it ends up being the same uh, weekend as Adepticon, I believe that's the last weekend in March. But uh, as Brett said, he'll have more info on the exact date. So just keep that in mind. Um, definitely a great uh It'll definitely be a great time. There'll be a lot of great people there. Uh, but with that said, I think we can kind of wrap it up. Um, thank you guys for listening in. Uh, it's a bit of a quicker show, which is, you know, always good to have now and then. Um, I hope you guys were able to get, uh, you know, all the info that you needed out of the show. Uh, but with that said, this is the Small Council Radio, and it is dismissed.